Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I want to get right to our topics today because we have a two-part show for you. Um, uh, in, in the next couple of minutes, we're going to be talking about a major story about the Fulton County Special Grand Jury investigating Donald Trump um, with Tamar Hellerman. I'll talk about that in just a sec. And then uh, we're going to bring in uh, Terrence Moore, who's written a, uh, a biography of Hank Aaron, the real Hank Aaron, an intimate look at the life and legacy of the home run king. But it's not the Hank Aaron story that a lot of us are used to hearing. And we'll get to Terrence in a few minutes. But uh, Tamar Hellerman has been gracious enough to uh, give up a little of her time to talk with us this morning. Tamar, you were on the show, of course, yesterday. And uh, not long after the show ended, you got a tip that led you to uh, break a huge national story, which today is all over national news and being talked about um, everywhere. Um, We now know, based on your writing, that uh, Fonnie Willis has called Rudy Giuliani, John Eastman, Cleta Mitchell, uh, Jenna Ellis, a couple of other people who were involved in the efforts to overturn the election, whose names aren't quite as well known, but also South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, who had a couple phone calls with um, Brad Raffensperger talking about absentee uh, ballots. That is a huge, Tamar, expansion of what the grand jury is uh, looking at. What do you think the significance of it really is in terms of, the, of, of Trump and his potential fate? Well, hey, Bill, thank you for having me back two days in a row. I I appreciate the invitation. Uh, This is a giant step forward in this investigation. Uh, For pretty much the last month, since June 2nd, when the special grand jury began hearing in person from witnesses, Fonny's really focused on state and local officials. We've heard from folks like Brad Raffensperger, his top aides, Attorney General Chris Carr, some local elections officials in Cobb and DeKalb County. Uh, We've even got news that that Brian Kent is going to give video remarks later this month. But this step is huge because, first of all, it's the first batch of people she's really seeking to subpoena from out of state. But not only that, this is the closest the DA has gotten to the inner circle of Donald Trump. And it's the first folks we know of who she's subpoenaing from the, the campaign. So it really shows kind of a methodical kind of moving up the pyramid toward the toward the very top. And so I will be very interested to see, first of all, who ultimately comes to testify at the end of the day, mm-hmm. because there's, you know, there, there's plenty of um, immunity and kind of privileges that, that folks could try and assert. And I'm also curious to see how far up she's willing to go in this food chain. That's uh, that's really a, a good point to make. First of all, we have heard nothing or you've heard nothing um, from Rudolph Giuliani's attorneys about whether uh, he is responding. They, they I think they said they hadn't seen a subpoena at this point. Right. Yeah. And I shared with them the, the subpoena that was filed uh, in Fulton <laughs> County, but they still said they had not been served the papers and didn't want to, to comment at that point. Uh, so the question is whether people that have been called, you, you alluded to it, um, Lindsey Graham may have uh, immunity as a member of, of the United States Congress It in the same way that we talked on the show yesterday uh, about the fact that uh, state legislators like William Ligon uh, and uh, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan believe they may have immunity because of uh, laws that uh, uh, protect them against having to give testimony that involves their work in, uh, in in the legislative process. And Graham could invoke that, I assume. Yeah, the U.S. Constitution has what's called the speech and debate clause, which protects members of Congress from kind of talking about their thoughts and motivations behind, you know, the legislative process, things they might be doing on the floor of the House and Senate, their committee work. But there's a real question about kind of where the line is here. Is calling a state elections official somebody who's not even from your state, does that fall within your duties? 
at the time, he was chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Perhaps there's an argument he can try and make that ensuring, you know, ensuring the integrity of the country's election system could fall under that, you know, kind of his, his interests as a chairman. But I'm sure there's also plenty of other people who would argue this is so far outside of your lanes. You know, states control their own elections separately from the feds. You had no business doing that. I could see either, either argument happening. So um, I think that um, you wrote that um, that Brad Raffensperger and Lindsey Graham uh, have different uh, uh, stories about what their phone conversations were. Raffensperger, I I think, says that they did, in fact, talk about Graham believing that some absentee ballots should be thrown out, whereas Graham says, no, I was just trying to understand the process of how you deal with absentee ballots. Yeah. And what was interesting about his subpoena is it mentions a second phone call that at least I was not aware of Mm -hmm. that Graham also apparently made to members of Raffensperger's staff around the same time asking similar questions. And the way that the DA's office frames it in the subpoena is that the calls were about reexamining certain absentee ballots cast in Georgia, quote, in order to explore the possibility of a more favorable outcome for former President Donald Trump. Um, Lindsey Graham has disputed this. Um, we have not heard from him since the subpoena has come out, and I'll be very curious to see what he has to say about it. Um, the John Eastman subpoena uh, strikes me as being especially important also be, because for a number of reasons. We now know, because of the January 6th committee's uh, work, that Eastman really was the leader of the effort to impanel these fake electors and take them all the way to January 6th, where the plan was to have Mike Pence recognize the fake electors, not the actual Biden electors, especially in the in, in these seven states uh, that were uh, disputed and where fake elector panels were put together. And the reason, of course, that's terribly important in Georgia is um, we know prominent members of the Georgia Republican Party who were among the fake electors, um, you know, the, the chairman of the state Republican Party. Um, was uh, on this. Uh, Burr Jones, uh, the Republican candidate for governor. And that sounds like the beginning of tying together some threads that could be very dangerous uh, for uh, those individuals. What's very clear when you look across these seven subpoenas is kind of two main focuses of this special grand jury at this point. One is, of course, this um, kind of scheme to pull together this slate of alternative Republican electors. What's also clear is they're very focused on this December 3rd, 2020 hearing held in the Senate Judiciary uh, Subcommittee that was convened by William Ligon, um, the the former state senator from Brunswick. And so Giuliani testified at that hearing. John Eastman testified at that hearing before he was such a household name. Um, And two of the other attorneys who were also subpoenaed were also a part of that, too. So you could see they're very interested in that. And something I'd forgotten, you know, was that Eastman, Eastman testified. And one of the things that he told legislators, and this is a quote, is, you know, he's, he's trying to argue that, that they should, um, there's more than enough evidence of fraud to warrant lawmakers picking an alternative slate of electors. And he said, quote, I don't think it's just your authority to do that, but quite, think, but quite frankly, I think you have a duty to do that, to protect the integrity of the election here in Georgia. Yeah. Um, one of the things that's particularly fascinating about how uh, Fannie Willis has now expanded the circle bringing in, or, or at least hoping to bring in, these big, big names in the Trump efforts to overturn the election, is that we know that the January 6th committee uh, has had trouble uh, getting some of the people they want to talk to to agree uh, to come in, even under a subpoena. And in some cases, uh, we've seen the committee uh, uh, refer them to, for criminal uh, uh, conduct, Steve Bannon being uh, one of those. But this is a Although it's a special grand jury that can't in and of itself uh, uh, bring charges, it's nevertheless can, I think I'm right to say, uh, say that these subpoenas are uh, valid because this is a criminal investigation. In other words, that's my roundabout way of saying these subpoenas may be harder to duck than those coming from the January 6th committee. 
Yeah, I mean, Georgia has a compact or Fulton County has a compact with kind of other states that allows them to deliver these subpoenas, even to folks who live outside of the, the Fulton County jurisdiction. Now, I believe that there is a way if these folks want to, to quash these subpoenas to, to fight them for them to have a hearing in their home states to kind of lay out why they don't think um, they should have to testify. And it would also, if that occurs, give us even more of a window, perhaps, into what Fannie Willis is hoping to accomplish with this investigation. We learned quite a bit last week in the um, when there was a hearing held with William Ligon, uh, Jeff Duncan, the lawyers, um, the lawyers representing them, them wanting to quash their subpoenas from Fannie Willis. It's really given us our best window yet into what exactly Fannie Willis is doing here. And the same thing would happen if any of these Trump campaign folks would do that, too. So one other question. Um, if, in fact, a Giuliani, an Eastman, a Cleta Mitchell and, and, and others, uh, Lindsey Graham, if they fight these subpoenas, is this going to drag out the process? In other words, I know that Willis has talked about trying to have an efficient timetable for her special grand jury. But if she really wants those people to testify could this, in fact, do we think, really lengthen the amount of time that she's going to have to keep her special grand jury working? Yeah, I mean, I think this really could extend the timetable for sure, especially if decisions end up getting appealed and we see kind of multiple levels mm-hmm. of courts look into this. At the same time, I think Fonnie Willis knew she was going to have a fight on her hands when she subpoenaed folks like this. <laughs> so I would hope it's kind of built into her time frame a little bit more. Um, of course, many of her critics complain that she's already expending a ton of resources on this when she should be focusing on other issues like crime in Fulton County. Uh, that said, there's, there are many other people who are supposed to be testifying in July. So even though she can be fighting this in court if folks want to quash, there's other people who she could be bringing in to come interview as well. So you can kind of walk and chew gum at the same time. It's a huge story. And Tamar, I really appreciate your taking a few minutes to join us for a second day in a row. As I've said several times in the last couple of weeks, you are wired into this story like no other reporter in the country. And I feel particularly grateful that we have the opportunity to have you talk about it with us on Political Rewind. So congratulations on this story. I know we'll be hearing more as your reporting continues, but thanks for being with us to help us understand it uh, today, tomorrow. Anytime. Thanks, Bill. Let's do this. Let's get a break out of the way. And when we come back, let's talk to Terrence Moore about his new book, The Real Hank Aaron, which I think is going to surprise people who think of the home run king in one very uh, certain way as a great star of baseball, but don't uh, really understand the darker side of what he went through uh, in his career. We'll do that after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Terrence Moore has been covering athletes and sporting events for the better part of what? I think four decades. I'll, I'll ask him to confirm that for me. He began when he was the sports editor of the Miami Student, the student newspaper at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. And it was then he began breaking color barriers, the first black sports editor of the Miami Student. He went on to become the first black Uh, sports journalist at uh, the Cincinnati Inquirer, then the San Francisco Chronicle. He moved to Atlanta, where he also broke the color barrier at the Atlanta uh, Constitution. Um, Beyond his work in print, uh, Terrence Moore over the years has been a familiar face on uh, ESPN. Uh, He's done work at CNN. He uh, has many TV credits uh, to his name, MSNBC, among others. One of the other things that Terrence Moore, I think, takes great pride for good reason is is that he has been a very long time close friend of the immortal Hank Aaron. 
And now his new book, The Real Hank Aaron, an intimate look at the life and legend of the home run king, uh, tells us many inside stories uh, that, that uh, Terrence can give us uh, based on his long uh, time friendship with Hank. I hope I said all that uh, correctly for you, Terrence. Tell me where I got it wrong, and I'll correct the record immediately. <laughs> Actually, only one huge thing, Bill, and that is I worked at the San Francisco Examiner, not the Chronicle. The Chronicle oh, was the I'm enemy. Sorry. But outside of that, it was excellent. It was absolutely excellent. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. So, um, Terrence, I, I, if, if, I would like to start our conversation by playing some sound. You'll know this sound immediately. It's sure. Vin Scully. Uh, it's Vin Scully on the night of April 8th, 1974. I think it was a Monday night, Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. Hank Aaron was one home run away from breaking Babe Ruth's record. And uh, he came to bat, his second at bat, I believe, took a ball on the first pitch from Al Downing, and then we'll pick up Vin Scully's uh, play-by-play. One ball and no strikes. Aaron waiting. The outfield deep and straight away. Fastball is a high drive into deep left center field. Buckner goes back to the fence. It is gone. What a marvelous moment for baseball. What a marvelous moment for Atlanta and the state of Georgia. What a marvelous moment for the country and the world. A black man is getting a standing ovation in the Deep South for breaking a record of an all-time baseball idol. And it is a great moment for all of us, and particularly for Henry Aaron. So I wanted to start with that, Terrence, because I think there is some irony in Vince Scully's call. Of course it was a great moment of celebration. Of course it confirmed what many people already knew, is that Hank Aaron was one of the greatest baseball players in the history of the game. But some of that commentary um, also really uh, ignores just how difficult his path to that home run was, the racism that he faced, the racism within the game itself. Uh, and you talk about that a lot in the book. So I, I'm interested in your thoughts as you hear Vin Scully, as I'm sure you've heard many, many times, and the contrast between what he's saying and the reality. Yeah, you know, first of all, with apologies to the great Vin Scully, who I know quite well. It wasn't so marvelous for Hank Aaron. And I'm going to say this in a two-part way, Bill. Uh, in the early 1970s, when he was going through that chase, it was a lot more uh, it, was, it was more horrible than people can possibly imagine, which you can read about in my book, and uh, that Hank told me directly on many, many occasions. And the second part about this, which uh, is brought out in the book for the first time, Hank Aaron was forever haunted by the early 70s when he was chasing that record and was receiving death threats and hate mail and what have you, and never left them, and, there, and it affected them in so many different ways uh, afterwards, and then the thing that I'm sure we'll get into is that people want to just kind of pigeonhole his his issues with uh, with racism and and outsiders with that period in the early 70s. But in truth, it stuck, stayed with him for throughout his entire career, and particularly when he became an executive with the Braves after his retirement from the playing for 1976, he was really that same guy receiving a lot of hatred even as a Braves executive. So if you're all right with this, I want to kind of weave together the romance of your story with Hank Aaron and sure. the darker side of the story that you learned as you got to know him better. So let me start by going back. I mean, Hank Aaron is a thread through your entire professional sports career. And before that, you were, I think, 12 years old on that exactly. night, that Monday night. Tell us about where you were, and how important it was to you and your family to be uh, present to see if Hank Aaron was going to break the record that night. Well, it wasn't 12 at that moment, but here's where the 12 comes in, Bill, okay? And, uh, you know, I was a 
12-year-old baseball fan back in 1968, and I got this poster uh-huh. of Hank Aaron, which I still have to this day, and uh, it's in perfect condition. So I went from being that 12-year-old baseball fan of Hank Aaron in 1968 to being an honorary pallbearer at his funeral in January no. of 2021. This kind of tells you about the relationship. So, But the, what happened, fate happened. And uh, being a spiritual person, to me, nothing happens by chance. I went from being that baseball fan to being a, a sports journalist. And as you uh, pointed out, uh, I'm sort of a Jackie Robinson of black sports journalists. And, and, and his hero, uh, Hank Aaron's hero, was Jackie Robinson. So that we had that, that, that in common. And it just was one of those type of things from the first time that we met in 1982. And we'll probably talk about that at some point when I did this huge series in San Francisco on blacks and baseball. From that point until I came to Atlanta and working for Atlanta Journal of Constitution in 1985, we just meshed very well. And because of our personalities, because of our backgrounds, because of the, the Jackie Robinson similarities, and because of this commitment for civil rights, the part that people don't really focus on enough, because he was more than just a baseball player, and all those things worked, worked together to make our friendship blossom. So, okay, so tell us about, because you portray it in the book, where were you uh, the night of uh, 755? You were with your your parents, uh, trying to watch it on TV, but it was a little more challenging (laughs) than you thought it would be. (laughs) Well, and again, and and Bill, this continues the theme of how we were destined to be in each other's lives, because uh, my dad was an AT&T supervisor, and he used to get transferred around the Midwest, so I was born in South Bend, Indiana, born and raised there. We moved to Cincinnati and then to Chicago. And then in 72, we moved to Milwaukee, which is so ironic because mm-hmm. Milwaukee is where Hank Aaron got to start in Major League Baseball in 1954. He loved Milwaukee, by the way. And when we moved to Milwaukee in 72, we really got a, a good feel about how beloved he was in Milwaukee and how much he loved Milwaukee. But to answer your question directly, it's on that night of April 8th, 1974, we're in, at home, and we're all big uh, big Hank Aaron fans, my mom and dad, and I've got two younger brothers, and we're all waiting for this moment, and we had this, uh, you know, this this great color television down in the living room, and, and it went out. It was, it, it was, it was like, the, it was like Babe Ruth's ghost was against us, you know, and, but we had this one little black and white television that was up in the kitchen, so we were all upstairs and, and around this little black and white television, watching the moment, cheering like crazy. And it was very much analogous being this black family watching this moment on April 8th, 1974, to what happened back on April 15th, 1947, when a lot of black families were gathered around the radio for the debut of Jackie Robinson. Um, so it, what's fascinating about this is, um, I, I want to talk a little bit, you talk about in the book a lot about similarities between Hank Aaron, Jackie Robinson, and then you. Um, and, and a lot of it has to do with the fact, obviously, that you're all African-American, but the circumstances in which you came up and the obstacles you faced. And I want to talk just for a couple minutes, at least, about your own family, because you talk about them in the book. And you start to talk about your parents, Sam and Annie Moore, as uh, examples sort of... In a way, they were Jackie Robinson. They were Hank. Oh, yeah. Your oh, dad, your dad began his work as an Indiana Bell janitor, janitor yes. with the Indiana Bell Company, and from there was determined to make for himself a more important career. Exactly. Talk about him a little bit. Yeah, he went from that, and then he he ended up being the first uh, uh, African American. Supervisor in the history of AT&T. This was back in the 60s in the Midwest, and he was one of the first two ever. And then he became the first black manager, African-American manager for AT&T in Milwaukee when he was in charge of three different states. And uh, that did not go without challenges. And this is important to the story because growing up as a kid, my brothers and I, we were watched what he went through and my, my mom, for that matter, what they went through. And it was preparing us for the things that we would go through in our own roles as the first of Jackie Robinson's. And that later on prepared me with Hank Aaron, where Hank Aaron saw the stuff that I went through and that he could, he saw that I related to him. One of the many things that my dad told me, and I'll just give you one of the many stories, 
was when we were in Milwaukee uh, and when he was a manager in charge of the three different states, he said he walked into his office one day and his white boss just said, said out of clear blue sky, he says, you know, Sam, the only white person I would ever have in my house, or the only black person I just should say I would ever have in my house would be Sammy Davis Jr. And then his boss just paused and just looked at him for a reaction that never came because my, my dad just went across and, and, and went forth and did his job. And I point that out because one of the things I talk about in this book an awful lot is that the modern racism involves mind games. And that's something I saw with my dad, something I saw with my, my mom, something I experienced, something that Hank Aaron talked about. And, and again, that was something that we both could relate to is that hidden form of racism that people don't talk about that is, is very much as deadly as it used to be in the old days with the fire hoses and the attack dogs. All right. So your mom, by the way, also uh, had a, a very uh, a meaningful career. It wasn't just your dad. She did. Yeah, yeah, right. And, and I, I'll tell you a quick story about that. In South Bend, Indiana, uh, Associates, was a, which was a savings and loan company, that's where the headquarters were. My mom, and this sounds just like my dad, whereas my dad, by the way, I should point out, he was the first African-American of any kind in Indiana Bell when he started as a janitor. My mom was the first African-American of any kind when she worked as a custodian at Associates, the headquarters of Savings and Loan there in South Bend, Indiana, worked herself up until being a filing clerk. And then we moved to, when we moved to Cincinnati, she got another promotion, and she used to tell about different racist moments that she would encounter as the only black person, one of which there was a coworker named Martha who was very jealous of her. Uh, one day, Martha came up to my mom with a key and waved it in her face and said that, you see this key right here? I can get into your drawer any time that I want. Mm. Again, we're back to mind games. And these are little things that if you start, as they start adding up uh, through a course of time, they become huge things. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk about uh, the, your, your South Bend days for just a minute, and you'll understand why, I think. While, while you were living in South Bend, you became a big fan of the Chicago Cubs. Well, I grew up in Skokie, Illinois. I used to take the L down to Wrigley Field all the time, starting when I was about 10 years old. And, of course, the player who I went to see and couldn't wait to watch come out on the field was Ernie Banks. Ernie Banks, who is an example of the African-American ball player who um, never rocked the boat. Ernie exactly. Banks was the positive, smiling face of the Chicago Cubs. I remember so well Ernie Banks, let's play two, when he had a doubleheader <laughs> on his hand. And I think the reason it's important to talk about an Ernie Banks is the contrast between that player and what Jackie Robinson and Hank Aaron became in their careers. They, they took a different course, and, and that's what I want to talk about in terms of Hank particularly, okay? Yeah, well, you know, and Bill, this is very important because this is one of the big keys of the book right here. Okay, and, and let's start with Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson, everybody remembers, again, April 15, 1947, breaking the color barrier. Jackie Robinson was much, much more than that. I mean, he was, he was LeBron James before LeBron James. He was really heavy into the civil rights movement. He was one of uh, uh, the uh, key athlete, uh, athletes when it came to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his marches in the 1960s. And again, I've mentioned that because Jackie was Hank's idol, not just as a baseball player, but just as a person. Okay, very important to note. So on October 24th, 1972, after Jackie died, Hank Aaron went to Ernie Banks and Willie Mays, the other mm -hmm. prominent baseball player that your listeners probably are familiar with, and said, look, now that Jackie has died, it's important for us to take up his causes when it comes to civil rights. And, and, and uh, what Hank told me back then, and, and for the first time he told anybody this, he said that both Ernie and Will said that we're going to do it. They just ran away. This is about and Karen just said, what? Um, hey, um, Terrence, I'm going to stop you for a second. For some reason, we're suddenly having a strange interference on your phone. I want to do this. I'm going to get a break 
in. I think probably uh, Natalie Mendenhall would suggest you uh, dial back into the show. Just hang up and dial back in, and we'll get you right back. It's just a momentary glitch, and we'll be have okay, back I, more with I, Terrence. Are you back? Can, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, let's keep going, because it sounds like whatever the problem was, it was temporary. Can, can do you I hear me okay? I, I do yeah, hear you now. You're you're fine now. It's one of the issues that we do these shows remote, Terrence, and I apologize oh, that uh, we okay. ha- have an occasional uh, issue. So so let's keep going. Um, let's talk about how Hank Aaron and his hero, Jackie Robinson, approached uh, the civil rights issues that they felt were so important in baseball. But I think one of the ways to do that, and, and it's terribly important, and you talk about it uh, in, a, in a lot in your book, is... What Hank went through as he was chasing the Babe Ruth home run record, the kinds of notes he was getting, the kinds of comments people were making, how difficult was that period for him, Terrence? Yeah, you know, and and again, this was a lot more uh, powerful as far as what kind of effect it had on Hank Aaron than people will ever know. And as a matter of fact, I did the last, major interview with Hank Aaron. It was back in the uh, uh, summer of 2020. He died in January 2021. And and the thing, Bill, every time I talked to Hank, and I talked to him hundreds of times, he would always say something that I'd never heard before. And so he was talking about that Babe Ruth chase, and he was talking about, and it was getting very emotional, talking about that people never understood how bad it was. He said that, he, he said if it wasn't for his teammates, he would have starved to death. Because he was saying that he couldn't leave his hotel room and they had to bring food to his room. He was talking about how he was always uh, uh, very fearful of going out to lunch with his teammates. He was very close to Dusty Baker, for instance, the current manager of the Houston Astros. He was like a son. He said he was always afraid to go out to lunch with him or Ralph Gar, another African American player, because he thought that they would take a somebody would take a shot and 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 hit those those young guys. He was more concerned about them than he was about himself. And the other thing that, that, that did was that period, it made him very resentful of guys like Pete Rose and Cal Ripken Jr. And, and, and Mark McGuire in this sense. Those were all uh, white players who broke famous baseball records. And what Hank told me in that, that last interview, he said that, you know, he just always, it always bothered him that they could go and have the time of their lives. That's what he said. And, and, and everybody celebrating them going after these records whereas he went through pure hell. And, and that, this is another way just to show you, Bill, about how much he was just traumatized by that entire Babe Ruth experience. Um, and Hank kept, we've learned uh, that, I think after his death, that Hank Aaron kept a lot of the notes, even the most racist notes that he got during that period, um, for whatever reason, you might have a sense of why he kept them, maybe to remind oh, himself... Sure of what the world really is like. Yeah, well, and, and that's what I talk about mm-hmm. that in the book, too. And I, and I asked him point blank. I said that, uh, did you save all the letters? And he said, I mm-hmm. saved some of the letters. And I said, well, what went through your mindset as to why you saved some but not others? And he said he wanted to save the ones that would remind him that things have not changed. And I thought that was very, very deep. Because, again, what gets overlooked with Hank Aaron's career in his life he was a guy that was really into the now, like what was happening to African Americans now in baseball and society, and and, the, and those letters were a connection to show how far we have not come. Now, granted, there's no doubt that he knew that we've we've, we've come a, lo- a long ways from where we were when we couldn't drink from the same water fountain. But but his thing was now we can drink from the same water, water fountain, but we still have all these other problems that still haven't been solved. Yeah. Um, in, in, in the book, you mentioned you're doing the last interview uh, with him uh, for ESPN, and you've, um, you've uh, uh, shared with us in the book the trans- much of the transcript of that long conversation, and it really becomes kind of the definitive interview uh, toward the end of his life. And, and I want to just ask you about a couple aspects of that. You at one point in that conversation uh, said to him, to me— uh, talking about the home run uh, 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 run-up, to me it was more of a civil rights thing as much as a baseball thing. Did you look at yourself as being more than a baseball player, or did you 
just think strictly I'm trying to be the best baseball player I can be? And his answer is really interesting um, because he says, essentially, well, I just wanted to do my thing. And he, he talks about Andy Young giving him a lot of advice about what, how to frame for himself what uh, working for that record meant. Yeah, and you mentioned Andy Young. Andy Young, they lived in the same neighborhood, southwest Atlanta. Andy Young, one of his closest friends, and, and of course our listeners are familiar with Andy Young being the former Atlanta mayor, U.N. ambassador, and, and right-hand man of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And essentially what Andy told Hank was that he, Hank, by going for that record, was doing as much as they were doing when it came to civil rights. And he just said that you do your thing, and we do, we do our thing, and we complement each other. And that they, they were working, yeah. working together along those lines. So, so yeah, that, that was a really huge, huge thing. Uh, and, and, and just reinforcement to Hank. That, uh, that he was, do- was doing more than just hitting a baseball. And again, that's something that I wanted to point out very much in the book. Hank was always very conscious of the fact that what he was doing was more than just what he was doing between the lines. You know, um, it, 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 I know that Andy Young and Hank Aaron were very, very close friends. Um, and, and I was fortunate enough to be able to kind of watch that uh, up close, as I suspect you were too. And it was always just marvelous to see how much they seemed to love each other, Terrence. Yeah, well, you know, Andy Young gave the eulogy at his funeral. Yeah. And, 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 and Bill, of course, you remember this quite well. I mean, you and I, eight years ago, you had me on your TV show with uh, Andy Young. Uh-huh. And we talked and, uh, about Hank Aaron at that time. This was back in, 19, in 2014, which was the 40th anniversary of him breaking Babe Ruth's record 715. And uh, and Andy Young, you know, he, when he talked about Hank Aaron, he talked about him back then, very emotional. Uh, they were really close friends. And the thing that's interesting too, Bill, that I should interject right here. Uh, one of the most startling things that Hank told me, which is also in the book, uh, uh, Barry Bonds. And, you know, Barry Bonds mm. ended up breaking Hank's record uh, in, uh, you know, for lifetime home runs in, uh, in August of 2007. And first of all, Hank uh, loved the record. He wasn't obsessed with the record. So he didn't really care if anybody broke the record. Uh, and he didn't really mind uh, Barry as a player. He didn't like Barry as a person, but there's a whole other story here. Okay. <laughs> but uh, but, but the, the, thing, the reason I bring that up is that after going through that Barry Bonds chase, Hank didn't want anything to do with it. He would only talk to me for the year leading up to that. Because, again, it reminded him of Babe Ruth and that chase and what have you. And I bring that up because one of the most startling things that Hank ever told me was a month after Barry Bonds broke his record in August of 2007, he told me, Hank, at 73 years old at the time, that he discovered for the first time in his life who his real friends were. Because there were a lot of people who were getting on Hank who he, he considered friends for not uh, you know, speaking out about Barry Bonds and supporting Barry Bonds and what have you. And he told me that he purged most of the people that he thought were his friends and discovered they were just acquaintances or associates. One of the ones he did not purge, of course, was Andy Young. But I thought that was very revealing to tell you about Hank's character, that he wanted that same character and people he associated with. Yeah, I think that's an important uh, part of your book, the way that comes up over and over again. Uh, I want to go back to that interview uh, because there's a very important quote that you get from him at, at, as you're talking to him for ESPN. You ask him on the day that he broke the record, what was his thought process as he was running around the bases? I'm not going to read it. You can explain it. <laughs> it will, and here's why I mentioned We go back to that Vin Scully call. What a great day. There's, it's the greatest day for Hank Aaron. It's a great day for to be a black person. But what was he really thinking? He was thinking about a couple of things. Number one, that it was over. And again, I can't stress this. He was not having fun at all. That was, that was just pure hell. So he was running around there thinking that it was over. Okay, that's one thing. And the other thing, and this tells you about Hank Aaron. He started thinking about his teammates, primarily mm-hmm. Ralph Gar and, uh, and Dusty Baker, both African-Americans. Again, two guys he treated as his son. And he's not thinking that, okay, now 
I can have lunch with them and not worry about their lives. Not about his life. He's worrying about their lives. Okay. So these are all the thoughts that are going through his head. And then one other quick thing, too, is uh, people may remember, or they Google, they'll see this. You had two young uh, white kids jump out on the field and start chasing him. And, and Hank told me in a later interview, he said that he had this private security guard that would follow him around, and the, the security guard would carry a gun. And after the, those kids were running around the bases with him, which you couldn't have done now because of so many reasons in Major League Baseball, he said that the security guard said, Hank, I didn't know what, uh, what to do with, with, when those guys jumped out of the stands. And Hank laughed, that, that contagious laugh of his, and said that, I'm just so glad that you didn't shoot them. <laughs> they were just having the time of, time of their lives. <laughs> right. uh, Terrence Burr, we've got to get our final break of the show out of the way, but uh, in just a moment, we'll come back with more and talk about your new book, The Real Hank Aaron, an intimate look at the life and legacy of the home run king. You're listening to Political Rewind. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. I'm talking to uh, Terrence Moore, uh, a veteran sports writer uh, over the years in print and television and the author of The Real Hank Aaron an intimate look at the life and legacy of the home run king. By the way, uh, Terrence, 20, almost quarter of a century at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, not one of your favorite places uh, to work. That's a whole other conversation. Um, I want to tell you a quick story, Terrence. I, here was my thrill with Hank Aaron. I was working at Channel 2 News covering politics, as I did for many years. And one sure. day, I, I, don't remember what, I don't remember what election it was at this point. But I came off the set after doing a story about what was going on in a gubernatorial campaign. And when I got back to the newsroom, uh, uh, an assignment editor called out my name and said, Bill, uh, you've got a phone call on line four. And I picked it up and I said, hello, this is Bill Nygut. And the voice on the other end said, other end said uh, hi, Bill, this is Hank Aaron. And I just about <laughs> dropped to the floor. He had seen, he had seen my story. I did not know until then that Hank Aaron loved politics, was really fascinated oh, no by doubt. politics, and he wanted to get my thoughts on whatever the story I had just done was. And that began for us, not like you in any way, an occasional conversation. Every now and then, we would talk about politics. And it was, I, I just have to say, um, it was one of the most thrilling experiences in my career in Atlanta. He wasn't a politician. He wasn't a political figure. But the fact that I could call Hank Aaron, that I had his cell phone number, <laughs> was to me an extraordinary thrill. And I know you understand that. Well, you, you know, I'll tell you something. Bill, uh, uh, Hank loved politics. And, uh, and, and another thing I talk about in the book, which you, which you read, of course, is the symmetry also between Hank Aaron and my dad. As a matter of fact, my mom told yes. me one time, said, you know, they got very similar uh, uh, characteristics, which is true. <laughs> and one of the things was my dad was a huge political junkie, as was Hank Aaron. And, and one of the stories I put out, point out in the book, uh, you know, and I would have this intu intuition of when to call Hank. And after uh, Barack Obama was first uh, elected president, I was like, yeah, let me see what Hank thinks about this. You know, the first black president, mm -hmm. you got Hank Aaron and the Babe Ruth thing and the Jackie Robinson connection. And I called up Hank and I got way more than I expected. And he was just, he, I mean, I, he was so giddy talking about how he and his wife, Billy, were at their homes watching two televisions at the same time. And he was, he was getting highly emotional. And, and I said that, uh, Hank, you know, did you shed any tears? He said, oh, yeah, yeah. He said, uh, I was just overjoyed. And he, he was talking about it was one of the greatest moments of his life, you know. And, he, and, uh, and I mean, he was sounded like a little kid. And a matter of fact, Bill, you know, from talking to Hank Aaron, you know, Hank uh, was a guy that would talk in uh, sound bites, which would be great for radio and television. Uh, and, but this is one of those type, 
things where I where Hank was just like he was on the roll. <laughs> I mean, he went, it was like he went out for like almost like seven or eight minutes nonstop, just talking about how thrilled he was, and he he was saying that you know that we may have not have gotten our forty acres in the mule, but we got fifty states with with the election of of Barack Obama. So <laughs> you know that that was a, that's something I'll never forget. Well. It, it, you know, one of the reasons I mentioned his interest in politics was to to, to talk about that just a bit. Um, I started at the very top of the show uh, framing this as um, an example of thinking about how teachers in Georgia are going to tell this our history um, with this divisive concepts law, in effect, that says right. you cannot teach things that will make people feel inferior, feel as though they're responsible for racism, whatever. Um, I wonder if the story of Hank Aaron is only going to be told from the celebration of his great career and what that means if children don't learn that there was another side, not just to Hank Aaron, but to other athletes in Major League Baseball who struggled under uh, the some of the racism that, that was endemic in the game that Hank Aaron worked against his entire life. Well, this ties into something else, Bill, and uh, and I'm glad you brought that up because this is also in the book that I wanted to stress very heavily, okay? Again, people want to pigeonhole Hank Aaron to those 23 years of Major League Baseball, but they forget that after he retired in 1976, he became only the second black baseball executive ever. I mean, his, his brother-in-law was the first, that was only he only got a two month head start on him, uh, but he he was the longest running black baseball executive and the only one for years, and he was very outspoken about blacks and baseball and that sort of thing. But here's the other thing I wanted to point out along the lines of what history has missed about Hank Aaron. So he spent 33 years after his playing career uh, as a very active uh, Braves executive, very effective one by the way. And matter of fact, the last guy that, <clears throat> that Hank Aaron hired as the uh, farm director was a guy named Brian Snitker, who was still the manager of the Braves. It just took him to a World Series, I believe. And and Hank talked about when he hired him and back in 1980 uh, you know, to be a, a manager instead of uh, being a backup catcher and, and encouraged him to do that. He was talking about how people wanted him to fire Brian Snitker because they could not see his, his potential. Okay, Hank Aaron was really big when it came to that streak of 14 consecutive division titles for the Braves in the 90s and into the turn of the century. Uh, uh, you know, David Justice, uh, Mark Lemke, Jeff Blauser, Tom Glavin, all, all those guys started out with, uh, with Hank's farm system. Now, the reason I'm pointing this out, Bill, as you found out in the book, Hank talked regularly about how outside of Terry McGurk, who was like the, the guru of the Braves and has been for many years, and Ted Turner, there were many people in the Braves organization that were not very fond of, of Hank Aaron and that they would undermine him with different type of things. And that, and, and he talked about how he overcame that and uh, to, uh, uh, to, to, to be, to be, be more effective than he would have been if he would have just given in. So uh, with that in mind, uh, let's talk a little bit about that because you, you do uh, spend a good portion of the book with, uh, discussing this. I think I'm right to say, but correct me if I'm wrong, that in earlier years in baseball, uh, there were there was more representation among black, black of black players um, than there is had, than there became in, in say the 21st century in the in the years leading up to where we are now. That the game has changed dramatically in terms of. The, the representation of, of, of blacks. Am I, is that basically correct? Yeah, yeah, and then this is a huge part of the story. And, and Hank and I both first met in 1982 when I worked at the San Francisco Examiner. And I did this deep study of blacks in baseball and discovered that Major League Baseball, on this uh, computerized scouting report, had a slot for race. And they were the only sport that had that. And then I started talking to players and, and managers and coaches, black and white, and the general consensus was, that baseball had a quota system to limit the number of blacks. And I talked to Hank Aaron for the first time in 82. So Hank believed from that point to his death that baseball was purposely phasing out African-Americans. And, Bill, the stats show something that's, that's not good. In the mid-1970s, that was a high for African-Americans in baseball. It was 25%. When I did that, uh, that uh, series in 1982, it was down to 19%. And now it's, it's 7%. 
And contrary to popular belief, Hank Aaron and many people thought that that was not by accident. And it goes back to what I discovered in 82 with that computerized scouting report uh, uh, that had race on it and some other things. You report in your book that uh, one of the uh, rationales that, that Major League Baseball's leaders have used over the years has been, well, black people just don't care about baseball. Yeah, they right. really don't want to play baseball. They're interested in football. They're interested in basketball. Um, it, but it, it, it would, I, I'm puzzled by it because we are living in an age when um, more and more uh, businesses are understanding that diversity is essential. And it's curious if you're suggesting that baseball hasn't followed suit. Well, okay, I'm going to make this real simple, because it's not just baseball. Let's turn to the National Football League, okay? <laughs> and look at all the losses okay. against them when it comes to coaches and what, what have you. And then, matter That's of fact, a really good point. Right, and I'll just leave you with this quick point here. Uh, they just had this big diversity meeting here at the NFL in Atlanta, Georgia, led by Arthur Blank, the owner of the Atlanta Falcons, who's been on the diversity committee since 2002, okay? And they made this big deal, and, and Arthur Blank gives a keynote speak, speech. This is the same Arthur Blank who has hired five head coaches since he joined the diversity committee, the original one in 2002, and all five have been white guys. So, so it's not just baseball, it's not just sports, it's society. Terrence, I am often on this show schooled by my guests, and I realized after I started to frame that question that you're absolutely right. Right now, the NFL is going through that very issue of why aren't there more black uh, managers in uh, the NFL. So it, you are so right, it isn't just baseball. Um so we are at the end of the show, I'm sorry to say, Terrence. I've really enjoyed being able to talk to you about your experiences over the years with Hank Aaron. Uh, the book is The Real Hank Aaron, An Intimate Look at the Life and Legacy of the Home Run King. Congratulations on, on the book and on that long, wonderful relationship you had, Terrence. Thanks for being with us for Political Rewind. Thank you. All right, we're out of time, except to say it's newsletter day here on Political Rewind. If you don't subscribe to the Political Rewind newsletter, do it today, gpbnews.org slash newsletters. You go to deliver to your inbox every Wednesday afternoon. Um, that's it for us today. Again, my thanks to Terrence Moore for his conversation, to, uh, to Tamar Hallerman for being on earlier. We're back with a brand new show tomorrow. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy. Bye, everybody.